So we hear these words from Luke 15, a very familiar parable within that context of the book of Luke. This is the trilogy of Christ speaking of three lost things. And so we have a lost sheep, the Lord or the shepherd, the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go and find the one, and we are that one. You have the woman who loses a tenth of all of that which she has saved. She can't find it, and so she makes diligent search. Here is the Lord seeking after in that way, and now this third of a lost son, of which children, certainly when we hear the story, we make that assumption that the lost son is the one who leaves, and yet ultimately there's probably a lot more lost about the older brother, but we'll get there in a little bit. But recognizing within even this telling that here is a narrative again of of the Lord's work. That our work is simply one of sin. It's one of misery. One of leaving our Father. And yet here is Christ saying, you are precious to me. Here is the Father who seeks his sons. That Father who has done that for us in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's hear these words together. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, we pay special attention to the reading of God's word because it is that, the very infallible, inspired, inerrant word of Almighty God. And so, and he, Jesus, said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he, the father, divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said, look. For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. 
the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's also turn in the back of the blue psalter, turning to uh, Lord's Day 2. Lord's Day 2, you can find that on page 9 in the back of your blue psalter. And so just those three very familiar question and answers for us. Question three, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency in our new forms uh, as a federation. I have a natural inclination to hate God and my neighbor. Thus far, our confession. Would you pray with me a minute? Our Lord and Heavenly Fathers, we come before your word. We recognize that there are a host of things that are on our hearts. There are things that we're thinking about. And Father, as much as this is a day of rest, we already start gearing up for what's next. Father, help us not to do that apart from first hearing the gospel. Be mindful again of that promise. And so, Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our spirit would be pleasing to you, for you are our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Well, congregation beloved of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is a saying that goes, misery loves company. And I think it's an absolutely ridiculous statement. No one likes misery. So if anyone is miserable, certainly no one needs company for it. The only reason we say this is because if there are enough other miserable people like I am, we start forgetting our misery. We don't need to think about it anymore. Since this is our common plight, what else is there to talk about? Certainly what else is there to complain about? But the problem with a statement like that, misery loves company, is that we never deal with the misery. It's always there, but let's just ignore it for a while. Let's just forget about it. But none of us wants to be miserable. I think it's the key reason that will, it's misery. And maybe, again, we can handle misery for a time. When I watch distance runner and the look on their face after several miles, that looks to me like misery. Maybe I should get to know it a little bit more. But, but there's that sense in it. I'm going to keep doing this thing and keep getting after it. And maybe you can handle it for a time. You, you ignore it. You expect if you ignore those feelings and pains that it will just deal with itself or take care of itself. But, but this kind of misery that we're talking about tonight, that doesn't happen. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't just take care of itself. No, you see, sin has to be remedied. Misery has to be taken care of. It's something that we have to be delivered from. And that, perhaps, is the biggest part of the struggle for us. Because with all kinds of other miseries, it's, let me deal with it. Let me work through it. Let me find a way. No, because this kind of misery, if we deal with it in that way, we make it worse, always worse, and never better. And so it is gracious of our God, even in this first section of the catechism where we talk about sin and misery, it is gracious that he makes us to know it. 
that sometimes the struggle when we go to the doctor and they tell us that they can't figure out what's wrong with us. We at least want it to be something so that we can make a way. But God's diagnosis for us by way of his word and spirit is clear. That apart from him, apart from a good and faithful father and a loving savior, there is only misery. And yet that doesn't come to us all at once. And maybe that's some of the danger of which even in memorizing the catechism and rushing through these three Lord's Days on sin and misery, that we don't take time to understand that process. That even for you, if you've counseled, say, your children through their own life of straying away from the Lord, or you've been an elder or a deacon in the church, and so you've, you've struggled through it, there's never this bit of downloaded moment where now all of a sudden it's like, you know what, you're absolutely right, I'm miserable, and all of these choices are terrible, and I need to run to Jesus. I mean, praise the Lord if that happens to you. But that typically isn't the way that it is. And so even in the language of our confession, how do you come to know that there's even in that word that understanding of process, that to live and die in the joy of this comfort means that we must be brought to know that it isn't just a one-time thing where we said the prayer, now we're in the salvation part and we don't need to remember that. Because as soon as I come to know that sin and I've dealt with that, there's another one and there's another one. And that process of sanctification hasn't stopped. How do we come to know our misery, that process? And so to live and die in the joy and comfort of Christ, we must be brought to know how great that sin and misery really are. Brought to the end of ourselves. We use terms like hitting rock bottom. We do that so that we would return to the Father. That even in that knowing process, we pray by God's grace coming again. And so we want to consider three things tonight in our text. We want to understand misery's explanation. Let's get at it. Let's see it in the life of the one that we typically term prodigal. Let's see how he gets there. Let's recognize in our own lives how we need to see that coming to know these things, even in our herd and watching other people go through that as well. Then the second thing we want to look at is the summation. Now in being brought to know that, what is that process of coming back? Because that isn't just a quick and easy, time-compressed bit of, well, now he's come back. What is that summation of those steps in that return? But then having to come in that third point to misery's inclination, to that bit of that natural tendency. But again, dealing not just here with the older brother, but dealing with us. What is our natural inclination when we hear the wonder of the gospel at work in someone? Where we see someone who has been saved out of all of what we would consider the worst of things and becomes a Christian and it's celebrated, but we've been righteous the whole time. I've always been in church. I've never known a day apart from the Lord. And so needing to deal with our own sin. And inclination as well. But the first thing then is misery's explanation. That we see it even in understanding in the book of James what? That every good and every perfect gift comes from the hand of the Father. And so that's the one that Christ references first. A man has two sons. That man is a father. 
And the Father has done good things for His Son. Every good, every perfect gift. And how much more so when Jesus comes and He wants to lay this before His people. In an understanding of the power of the Gospel and what the Father is doing to seek and save His chosen, here is every good thing. Every good thing received from Him. And yet the struggle of sin makes itself plain right away. Because the problem with his goodness, at least the problem that we make it into, is that we want the goodness. We want his gifts. We want his blessings. We want his reward. We want everything that comes from his hand. But in sin, we don't want him. We want the gifts. In sin, we don't want the giver. In fact, here, we see a son not only claiming his own, and certainly there is that way of this, right? A son coming, but, but fathers, none of us wants to see our son come up to us and say, hey, give me half my inheritance now. Give me half of what is yours now. We would look at it and say, fresh kids, stop being disrespectful and get out of here. But that doesn't happen here. He does it. Gracious and kind in recognizing who his son is and where he's at. Perhaps even knowing his heart here in this text. And yet all the son desires, even a couple days after becoming fully loaded, says, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to distance myself from the Father. Give me my share. Give me your gifts, but let me live separate from you. Which leads us to a one-sentence statement of misery's explanation. You want to know what misery is? The road to misery leads away from the Father. That if you consider the decisions of your life, you look and say, I was miserable every time I turned from His Word. Every time I turned away from the Lord. Every time I ran from a good and gracious Father. And we see it writ large in every one of his decisions. Here he goes off and he squanders and spends his inheritance in Vanity Fair. And children, maybe you've seen the movie Pinocchio. We used to watch it a lot as kids on those little rectangle things that they call VHS tapes. We would do that on our way from New York to Michigan to go visit my grandparents. Two or three movies, a little nap, and you were good. But what sticks with me in that movie is that here is this one who wants to be a real boy, a real son, and yet giving himself to all of those amusements, now he makes a donkey of himself. He is separate from his father. That road has led far away from his maker, from Geppetto. How much more? Understanding Christ's reference here, saying there is no life away from the father. There is no life apart from His goodness. And yet He sends His Son away in that way. His Son goes away. He gives His Son all that He needs and abundantly more than that. And yet what do we read about the Son? He began to be in need. He finally comes to the end of Himself. He's got nothing. There's no more to spend. There's no relationship to seize upon. There's no one to ask for more grace. He finally is able to speak what he's always been. 
he had always been in need. Even with all of that resource, he had been in need. And so sometimes we sit there and, and maybe we wonder. Because if you're a lot like I was, I was one of those rule follower kids. And I didn't go off and do all of the normal rebel things. There was enough sin in my own heart that I kept to myself. But in terms of those outward things, I didn't go and do that. I didn't have some kind of reformed rumspringer, as it were, right? I didn't need to do my wandering. And we don't have to do that. And when I look at kids and they want to get out of our bubble or they want to leave the church or they want to go travel or they want to head somewhere away, not saying that it isn't good to leave the nest, but, but when they're leaving churches because they think they need to figure out life, you don't need to. And I didn't need to either. Why? How do I come to know my sin and misery? Not by doing it, not by giving myself to it, not from running to the Father. The law of God tells me. Because the law of God tells us who our Father is. It reveals to us His character. It reveals to us His holiness. It tells us what we are, that we are not holy. It tells us what we've lived for, sin and for self. It tells us of our guilt and deepest longing. It reveals to us that which separates us from Him. And why we've run from the Father rather than run to Him. But that law also tells us that I or others, or my words, or my works can't fill the ultimate need of my heart. It can't give me that longing. It can't forgive my sin. And that explanation of the law, it ultimately destroys us. When we hear that law, our sin comes alive and we die. There's only death. I am dead in trespasses and sin. My sin is what makes us and all things miserable. And yet that law is still speaking of a different way. Because we're brought in that explanation to recognize that the only possible solution is not us, but of being restored to a right relationship to the Father. That's the point. But yeah, we get caught up in the gifts. I've squandered the gifts. I don't have anything to bring. Look at what my life is. We're brought in this explanation, brothers and sisters, to know that there's nothing we can bring to the Father that he would receive us again. But that's the struggle of our sin, too, because now it's not just a, a, a brazen disregard of the Father, but now it's a, how am I going to earn favor back with him? What am I going to do righteously so that he will take me back? How can I fix my brokenness and my misery so I can be right? But that only serves to distance us from him. And so this kind of explanation of misery still has to serve to drive us back to the Father, to seek his mercy and to call for it on the basis of who he is. And so that is part of that coming to know. Here is in that second point, misery's summation of now, not only the beginning of it and how we try to process it and how we try to fix it, but also again, fully coming to the end of ourselves that we might know our Father 
and know the work that he does for us in our Savior. Because that word in verse 17 is important. When he came to himself. That all of this starts to land. And he realizes that something is off. But even that he doesn't figure out on his own. None of us do. If I'm dead, I can't figure something out. And so already here is a gift of God. That in that way we can rightly say, young people, his law is a gift to us. We recognize that it slays us, but it's a gift. Because the law brings conviction of what? Of brokenness. It reveals to us the reality of famine, of our separation, of our lack, of our need, of our helplessness. He makes it plain. Here are the terms. Here's the way. Here's the sentence. And so what we see then in the thinking and action of the prodigal, the unfolding of misery summation, really becomes the cliff notes of a journey that we don't know how long it takes. It didn't take him anything to spend all the money. But we don't know how long the process is. And I pray to you parents who have wayward children, that that becomes a source of encouragement for you. We want our kids to come back right away, and we want them to have that understanding of misery and to return, and to come again to the Lord. But there's process, and we trust that God is working in his law and his word to bring that conviction. We pray that we are continuing to reach out in the gospel, that they would hear its sweetness and come. But there's time. And so the lessons that the prodigal must learn become plain in the words of our text. And so if you're taking notes, that summary can be seen in six parts, and they're not going to be long. But the first part is this. That the son comes to realization that the father is good, and I'm not. The father is good, and I'm not. Look, look how he treats his slaves. Look how he treats those who are simply his employees. Those not his children. But also the grip of that struggle of saying what? Look how I've treated him. I'm his son. Look what I've done. Which leads to the second. I'm not worthy in and of myself to be called your child. We start to focus on our guilt. We start to focus on our shame. And if that's where we are left, that's a long bit of that process. Because now I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. What are they going to say? What will the church say? How will they talk about me? How will I be received? And yet you get to a point Wherein being made known, your misery being made known, where you realize that the only way back is the way back to your father. It's the only way. I know I must go. I will go. And so he arose and he came to his father. I will arise and go to my father. Because he's been brought again to understand his father's goodness and righteousness. 
He's brought in his mind and his heart before one who is kind and compassionate and patient, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and tender mercy before one who has a heart of love for his children that he had forgot and separated himself from. But now he comes before it sweetly. And yet again, one of those bigger steps between that then comes not only in recognizing who the Father is, but recognizing that my misery must work confession. We must repent. I've sinned. Not I've made mistakes a few. Whoops, my bad. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against my Father. And that's still the call of that word even tonight. That you, if you are living right now apart from a good and gracious Father, He's calling you back to Himself. He calls you to repent, to believe that good news. He has not changed. Come again to Him, confess your sin. I am not worthy. And yet, what are we met with? It's the scandal of grace. It's the sweetness and the beauty of the gospel. Because now the action is no longer mine. The action belongs to the Father. Because my Father receives and restores always. And maybe as fathers we struggle with that because we're all about second chances, but we really don't like third or fourth or fifth ones. My father receives and restores always. This is who he is. I will arise and go to him. And the father shows himself to be exactly who he knows he is. To run out and embrace him and hold him and kiss him and kill the fattened calf and let's celebrate this. He who is lost is found. He who is dead is alive again. Receive to me again. That there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. It is the joy of the Father. And so sinner, why remain miserable and hungry and wallowing in the filth of your sin and separated from the Father and isolated from others? When this is the reception he promises. This is how you will be received in coming to him in repentance and faith. And he doubles down in the sixth way because my father rejoices always. This is his delight. This is his joy. He reveals his holiness and standard. Yes, so we would be broken and humbled and brought to the end of ourselves that we would return to him with no hope in me and knowing no way to help myself. I can't feed myself. I can't provide myself. I can do nothing, Father, to receive your goodness. But would you receive me? I'm not worthy. And he says, here's the robe. Here's the ring. Here's the blessing. 
so that we would fall down before him alone and call on him alone to forgive us our sins and remove our guilt and clothe us again in his righteousness that he would claim us again as his child. And this should be the picture that comes to mind when we think of grace. When we think of how amazing it is. When in the church we receive someone by way of a readmission, we'd better be eating cake and celebrating that thing after church. This is how the gospel works. This is how salvation comes. This should be our highest joy, our greatest joy, not just as churchmen and churchwomen, but as the children of God. This should overflow in us. This is what we long to see. And yet we still give testimony to the fact that there's still a little something miserable in us. Because that isn't always the way it is. I would love to say that's the way it always is. But I know my own heart too. And so as we come to this last point, to misery's inclination, we can recognize the misery in these stories. But it's hard, and again, if you look a little like I did when I was younger, hopefully now still as a pastor, though understanding grace in a better way, We've made the right decisions. We go to church when it's open. We, we do the stuff. We do the things. We give to the things. Our kids do the right things. We, it's the way we talk. It's the way we act. And so in that way, we're inclined to think about misery as somebody else's. I remember as a kid, I, I worked at a Bible camp, and there was a man who came, and and he had the whole list of, of the things that a, a Dutch reform kid from a bubble who has moved away, now all of a sudden eyes get wide. Here's someone who had done time in jail. Here's someone who dealt with substance abuse and alcohol abuse, whose wife had left him, whose children were gone. I mean, every one of those bits of testimony things that you're like, wow. And I came up to that man afterwards and I said, you have such a brilliant testimony. He looked at me and he said, do you love Jesus? I'm like, yeah. Did your dad? Yeah. He's like, how far back can you trace it? And I said, all the way to the French persecution in the time of the Reformation. And he's like, you have a better testimony than I. But because of that testimony, we can weaponize that. And we can use it to club other people and to look at misery as somebody else's thing and not to celebrate the wonder of redemption. We look at misery as though it's something we've been delivered ourselves from. But the reality has to land today. I am inclined by nature to hate. And I'm still warring against that sinful man. And so something even as beautiful as salvation and the salvation of sinners, I can take that in the ugliness of my heart and warp it. Is it real? Will it last? Do you know what he's done? We have to remember this. We have to be... And so yes, the prodigal is inclined to sin and misery to unrighteousness, to hating God and neighbor and all of his outward works. It's been made plain. 
See, our inclination, our tendency from the moment of our conception, those who have been raised with so many undeserved blessings, yet we continue to despise the giver of those blessings in thought, word, and deed. That's our definition of misery. So much so that at times, preachers preach this parable and leave out the older brother even. But the older brother is inclined to sin and misery too which can be summarized in one word, self-righteousness. There's a hyphen in the middle, it's one word. Self-righteousness. To hating God and hating neighbor, which outwardly doesn't look that way, but in us, it's all sorts of bitterness. And it's that inclination that too often spills out when we doubt or question those who have been brought to the end of themselves and are brought back into the church. Pastor, they've got to prove it. They've got to prove it. Well, how long? How much are they going to show you God's grace before we will recognize it ourselves? This is the inclination that spills out. Look at all that I've done. I should be more blessed than those who live wantonly. My life should be celebrated just as much. Do we realize what comes out of our mouths and heart? (laughs) And yet, praise be to God that the Father is kind and gracious to people like us too. Because the Father runs out to his son that had run away from him. But this Father also draws near to the son whose heart is far from his. And what does he say? Son, you are always with me. He's recognizing it. He's thankful for it. But it's the next phrase that should slay us. All that's mine is yours. And you're like, where have I heard this before? You had everything, son, yet you believed you had nothing but service to a tight-fisted father who was supposedly keeping a good thing from you. It's the same lie that was told to our first parents, Adam and Eve. All that's mine is yours. It was his gift. And Satan comes and says what? You're not going to die. No, 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 you're going to be like God. They already were like God. All of it was theirs. They already possessed every good thing from their father. But in sin, they are now driven from him. And so in such inclination, brothers and sisters, because it's ours too, we also need to be brought back into the presence of God. And he pleads with us to that very thing every Sunday. That as the gospel goes forth, he is pleading with us again, be reconciled to the Father. Come and bring your sin. Recognize your brokenness. Recognize that you have nothing to bring. Even your outward acts of righteousness, filthy rags, if you're going to hold on to them as self-righteousness. And if you're going to give glory, give glory to the God who is prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. No, we're inclined to sin and misery yet, too. There's still process, progressive sanctification that needs to happen. 
And so we need to be brought again and again before his law, his work, his gospel. Because it is the means that others, it is the means that we are returned and restored. Do we believe that? The gospel isn't just for other people or broken people or people like that man that this young man heard and had all the signs of real brokenness. No, mine was the brokenness. Do we remember that the dead are made alive? That the lost are found? That the Father rushes to His returning children who draw near in repentance and faith to embrace them and welcome them home in His love and work? Does that scandalize us every time we hear it? That He receives them in the person and work of His Son in whom they have all things. And so, brothers and sisters, yes, we come to know our misery and inclination to sin because the law tells us. But we pray by grace that we come to know our God and his intention to save because the law tells us too. It's in the prologue. I am. I haven't left you. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm the God who has done all things for your exodus, for your deliverance, for your salvation. I have brought you out, out of sin and slavery, and I will be Him who brings you in, into my promise and into myself and into my joy. Do we believe it? Because if we don't, then all that we have is misery. And we pray that that kind of misery would not find its company in this church or in any of our other churches. But that we would find is the joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit we would abound in the hope that is ours in a faithful Savior who has left the 99 to find the one who has searched diligently to have us and who has come that the Father's joy would be complete in the salvation of his own. Amen. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel, before its beauty, before its power, before its great joy. And so, Father, we thank you that even in all of that process of the prodigal of which we are one, even as we can also identify with the older brother, Father, we recognize that we must be brought to the end of ourselves. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And so, Father, if you are working that in us right now, Father, lead us to the rock who is higher than I. Lead us to the cross that we would lay down our burdens and take up in freedom, Father, the life and the joy and the beauty of that great great robe exchange. That our filthy rags have been exchanged for the beauty of Christ's robes of complete righteousness. At the ring, a symbol, Father, of our, our great blessing in you, Father, is brought. Lord, that sacrifice made that we might celebrate with you all the more. And so, Father, we ask that if we're inclined to be miserable, tight-fisted with mercy, not excited, Father, about the gospel, Father, hardened to the wonder of the fact that you continue to save sinners. Father, we pray, break our hearts for the lost 
who are not just some prayer people group of which we hurry through. But Father, people with names like those of some of our children or grandchildren or neighbors or coworkers or classmates. And so, Father, we pray, knowing their sin and misery, embolden us, Father, to run and seek them out and to call them to repentance and faith, knowing, Father, that there is salvation full and free in the perfect work and righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, fill us, fill us, Lord, with the joy and wonder of that salvation, even like the hour we first believed. Father, restore to us the joy of our salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together the wonder of that grace, which is unbelievably amazing. Let's turn in the Psalter hymn to number 380, Amazing Grace. Let's stand to sing all the stanzas. We'll follow that up right away with the singing of our exology, number 488. It's printed in your bulletin. Let's stand to sing, 380.
heat. Go forth into this week then in the assurance of that grace and blessing, going out with the Lord's name as you depart. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.